us here. Please be seated. Some years ago, I developed a relationship with a university student. He was an avowed atheist, but like uh, Felix, the governor in Acts 24-22, my friend had what we could say, quote, was a rather accurate knowledge of the way. Indeed, I think he had a better knowledge of Christianity than many Christians that I've met. As I continued to share with him my faith in Jesus, he would occasionally press the point, Christians are responsible to spread the message of Christ crucified and risen for the forgiveness of sins. It was a strange conversation, but he'd say this every once in a while. He was an outspoken unbeliever, and yet he understood that the mission of the church was to make disciples. Recently, I sat among a group of cultural Christians who were trying to remember the word evangelical. I had a little fun with it by just being silent and watching to see if they could come up with it. They knew just enough to be dangerous, but as I watched, they did come up with the word evangelical, and they had a fairly accurate idea of of what it meant. When I later identified myself as an evangelical, as one who believes in the gospel, they said nothing. They had no interest in talking about the gospel. They did not attend a church, and yet they knew that the mission of the church is to make disciples. And so, obviously, do we. We know that making disciples is one of the most fundamental aspects of our mission as Jesus' followers. We are called to spread the evangel. The good news. The good news about salvation in Christ. And we're to spread it to people alienated from God and enslaved in sin. We know this about them. We know this about Christ and we know this about us. We are to take this message to a needy world. Perceiving this to be our mission is as elementary for Bible-believing churches as it gets. We recognize this and understand it. The challenge, of course, comes in perceiving this mission rightly and fulfilling it faithfully. As we strive to conform our life as a local church to the New Testament pattern, the mission to spread the gospel should increasingly mark our DNA. It should just be who we are. And it is my prayer and our earnest prayer together as a church that the Lord of the harvest will direct us to pursue this mission with increasing courage, with zeal, with wisdom, and with faith. As we pursue such a culture together, as we seek to be such a church, we are greatly served by the example of the church at Antioch of Syria found in the pages of Acts particularly, but before considering the history of that church, we need to root the narrative in our Lord's commission to His followers. And again, this is the ABCs of church life. But remembering Matthew chapter 28, and you may want to (coughs) turn there in the Scriptures, Matthew chapter 28, The scene here in Matthew 28 at the end of the chapter follows Jesus' death in the place of sinners. It follows His resurrection from the dead and it precedes His ascension into heaven. So Matthew's Gospel 
in this gospel, these are the final words Jesus leaves ringing in the ears of the apostles. Verse 18 of Matthew 28, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Conquering sin and death, Jesus reigns with supreme authority over the two angelic realms and over every square inch of planet earth. As sovereign Lord, He commissions His apostles, verse 19, to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Make disciples. Working this out, making disciples is to speak to people of every tongue, tribe, and nation across the face of the globe, explaining who Jesus is and what He has done to conquer sin and death and persuading them to repent of their sins, trust Jesus as Savior, and to be reconciled to God. This definition on the screen could be added to, could be subtracted from and made more succinct. It could be said in different ways. But as we get to the heart of it, this is it. To take this message of salvation to the world and to persuade people to trust in Christ as Savior as they turn from their sins. Those who respond in saving faith to this good news, as we've noted here, are to be baptized. And we are to make disciples by continuing to teach them, verse 20, to observe all that Christ has commanded us. And that stands, of course, upon the authority and the teaching of the apostles. We know this text of Scripture very, very well. We consider it so many times. As we talk about the life of the local church, it is Christ's commission that is the nest in which the life of the Antiochian church uh, proceeds, in, and as they respond to what Christ has said, we read of the narrative, the history of that response. Acts chapter 1, as we move to that book, we'll look at the first chapter first of all, before we again consider directly the church at Antioch. <clears throat> but Acts chapter 1, this narrative also follows Christ's resurrection, precedes His ascension to heaven. In verse 4, we read of Acts chapter 1, verse 4, while staying with them, He ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, verse 6 of Acts 1, When they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Jesus, you've defeated death. I think it's time to run Rome out of here. You've taken out our greatest enemy. Now, isn't it not time to defeat Rome and to establish a kingdom at Jerusalem? Isn't this what we've been working on and what you've been preaching about and talking about? Notice what he says, verse 7. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. He does not correct the idea the kingdom will be established in Jerusalem, that he will reign in some unique sense that is yet to be realized, but he says it's not time. 
We're not going to talk about that now. This is not information you need for the stage of the mission that is at hand. That is the Father's business. This is your business, to make disciples. Verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is your calling. So the disciples are commissioned to proclaim the gospel to the furthest reaches of the globe. And that mission settles in at this point in the text as we move into Acts 2 and Pentecost, the festival that takes place there. It settles in at Jerusalem. It is the martyrdom of Stephen who proclaims the gospel to the Jewish authorities. It is the martyrdom, his death as they respond in violence against him that really moves the mission from Jerusalem outward to the regions as Christ has said of Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. The mission will now move into Gentile territory. And that leads us to Saul of Tarsus. Now Peter in chapter 10 and 11 has a very specific part in moving the gospel into the Gentile realm specifically. There's other evidences of it earlier in chapter 8, but it is with this martyrdom of Stephen that we find this move forward and we come to the example of Paul. I should read, first of all, chapter 8 and verse 1, Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, where Saul is at the execution of Stephen. It says, there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. For reasons that are not stated there, they remain in Jerusalem. So the gospel is spreading, and now into Gentile territory, and as we come to Acts chapter 9, and then move beyond what takes place with Peter in 10 and 11, we're introduced here to Saul of Tarsus. We're not going to read through the text here, as we're still working our way to the church at Antioch, but to set this all up, there's the mission to which Christ calls His church. There's this ongoing spreading movement of the gospel outside of the city of Jerusalem. And then there is Saul of Tarsus, this rabbi who journeys from Jerusalem to Damascus, where he intends to incarcerate, prosecute, and punish Christians. Jesus has entirely different plans for him. You talk about a reversal of operation here. He's going to crush the church and Jesus chooses Saul to serve as one of the vanguards of the mission to Jews as well as to Gentiles. So Saul meets Christ on the way from Jerusalem to Damascus on the road there and spends parts of three calendar years in isolation in Arabia where he is taught by God according to Galatians 1. It's a time of intense meditation in isolation, thinking through Scriptures, understanding how they point to Christ, a time of learning and growth for Saul of Tarsus as he prepares to uh, present the Gospel to the world. He then returns to Damascus and he preaches the very Gospel he originally came to oppose. Well, what happens there in Damascus? The Jewish leaders are not happy with this. They plot, in fact, to kill him. The only way we can deal with this guy is to silence him. And so with that plot in view, 
Saul escapes from Damascus. He's let down in a basket outside the wall. There's an opening in the wall, and he's let down onto the ground in this basket, and he runs away. It's a pretty humbling experience to come in with great pomp and circumstance to be the one who's going to crush the Christians, and he leaves probably in the cover of night running for his life. Where does he go? He goes to Jerusalem, where there are a number of Christians, where there must be some sort of support there, but as he gets there, there's not a whole lot of people standing in line that want to support him, are there? They're saying, this has got to be one of his plots, he's just going to hurt us. But you remember Barnabas, this great friend and encourager, comes alongside, puts his arm around Saul of Tarsus and says, Let me represent you to the leadership here in Jerusalem. And he brings them to them, and Saul is accepted, and it's understood that something very dramatic has happened. But once again, the authorities want to kill Saul. And so he escapes, as he did from Damascus, from Jerusalem, running away to Tarsus, where he grew up. The city of Tarsus was cosmopolitan. It was a Hellenistic city. It was a large city, and he could operate there without threat of death. So here Paul ministers for nearly ten years. Ten years in Tarsus. We really don't hear anything about him but that he's there. We would assume, as we know who he is, that he was working out his theology, proclaiming the gospel, but with with, uh, no emphasis here particularly in the book of Acts. That brings us to chapter 11, following Peter's report concerning the work of God among the Gentiles that took place in chapter 10, his report in chapter 11. We come to verse 19 of Acts 11, and here we meet the church at Antioch. Acts 11, verse 19. So the the gospel reverberates outward from Jerusalem north to Phoenicia. We read, verse 19, those who were scattered... Because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia, modern Lebanon. And it traveled as well, verse 19, to Cyprus, the island in the Mediterranean, and Antioch, which you can see here on the map. They were speaking the word to no one except Jews. So it's moving from Judea, Samaria, and beyond to various parts. But it is uh, Jewish people those uh, Old Covenant people who are understanding the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures as has been revealed to them and has been delivered to them, it's these people that are receiving the Gospel message. There is not a venturing out to the Gentiles yet at this point. Now Antioch, as you can see on the map here, is 300 miles north of Jerusalem. And in the strategy of the Spirit, It is a hinge point that is going to fling out the gospel to the west. You can see how it gets up over uh, top, so to speak, the Mediterranean Sea there, and the gospel will spread to the west, and we'll look today in that uh, red box at the work of the gospel through Saul in that region. Antioch serves as a strategic place, an early stage of evangelism that moves beyond uh, Jerusalem. So, In verse 19, we see they're speaking the word only to Jews, but verse 20, there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
Who were these risk-taking, forward-thinking, evangelistic pioneers who are speaking to Greek-speaking pagans? We don't know who they are. They're anonymous. I'm looking forward to finding out someday. To meet these individuals, what a, what a unique event in history. But they proclaim the gospel there, and there's great response. Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. We don't know who they are, but we know that Christ went with them. And a great number who believed turned to the Lord. So the Jerusalem church responds by sending then one of their very best men to assess the situation. Something really unique is shaking there in Antioch. The report, verse 22, of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. A Hellenistic Jew from Cyprus seems to be a good individual to go and to assess the situation. So they send him out to see what is taking place in Antioch. And when he came, verse 23, and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of Holy, the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. Get into the scene. We have just the sketch of it here. There's great response to the gospel. This is a thrilling spot on the planet. Right here at Antioch, many people responding to this message of Christ crucified and risen. Newborn souls are like newborn infants. They're a source of great joy, but they require an immense amount of work. And the ongoing discipleship and care for these new believers in this response to the gospel is weighing upon Barnabas. There's so much to do. So what he does is kind of interesting. He doesn't run back to Jerusalem and say, you won't believe what's happening there. We've got to work through this whole thing, putting ourselves outside the world of cell phones and Facebook and telephones and all this kind of stuff. He couldn't Skype with the missionary or with the sending church or anything like that. He just, it, it, they just had to wonder what was going on until someone came. He doesn't take the time to go back to Jerusalem. He goes, interestingly, to Tarsus. And again, no phone, Skype, Facebook, none of it. He got to find Saul of Tarsus. It was a brilliant idea. And based on Acts chapter 9, is God's revelation to um, Saul and what his future was, it made very good sense. He might have even been the only man at Antioch that would recognize Paul when he saw him. And so he goes to search out this theologian, this man who has been for some 10 years operating in relative anonymity in Tarsus, and maybe there was connections between them throughout this time. We, we don't entirely know. But Barnabas, verse 25, went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And the, by the way, the word look for there in verse 25, the Greek word, means that he searched diligently, arduous search, and finds him. Eventually the asset is found, and he persuades him to return to Antioch of Syria. Verse 26, he found him, brought him to Antioch. He gets him to come. It's an amazing thing. And um, verse 26 is at the latter part of the verse, the whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people, and in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. 
So Saul and Barnabas form a tremendous team, and God blesses their disciple-making efforts at Antioch. These guys weren't the same. Saul is this quintessential theologian, this deep thinker that can understand the Scriptures and can reveal their, how they point to Christ as Messiah. Barnabas is a godly, faithful, spirit-filled encourager who brings people together. And working together with their unique abilities, they are ministering faithfully and people are responding. There are those who are coming to Christ the Savior, there are those who are being deepened in the faith, and they're even called Christians, which indicates at least that the local populace knew who they were. It might be a derogatory term, we're not sure, but there's those Christ followers, those Christian people. That leads us to Acts 13. There's some intervening narrative starting at chapter 12, and we move forward from there to Acts chapter 13. Here we read again the familiar words, verse 1, Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon who was called Niger, Africa, Lucius of Cyrene, North Africa, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. This would be a great fiction to write. Maybe you shouldn't do that about Bible people, but can you imagine? Being a friend doesn't mean that these guys just you know, played baseball together in the backyard. It means that he was included in on Herod's family in some way, whether as an adopted son or just an official friend of Herod. This is the Herod who took off John the Baptist's head. This is a Roman official of high standing who was very much opposed to the cause of Christ. That was his childhood friend. Herod, serving Rome, had fallen into disgrace and was right now in exile. His friend, Menaean, was serving the king of kings and having the time of his life. What an amazing setting as these men are identified as prophets and teachers. Probably one office, it's difficult to say here, but at any rate, individuals who brokered in the word of God. They are teaching the truth of God to the church that is there. Verse 2, while they were worshiping, The Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So the disciple-making enterprise in Antioch included a faithful teaching ministry of God's Word. But as this same local church realized the need to serve as a, they also realized the need to serve not only in nurturing their own, but as a launching pad from which the message of Christ's saving grace would spread far beyond the borders of their own town. Now you notice how this takes place. I think there's significance here. I don't believe we're reading too much in to see the way that it takes place. There is prayer and fasting. The Spirit of God identifies Saul and Barnabas in their task to go out from the church. And then there's prayer and fasting as they are sent out with hands of authority laid upon them in verse 3. In other words, Saul and Barnabas weren't 
at Caribou Coffee talking about how they could spread the word, one day hatched this plan and said, wow, this is good. We're liking this. Let's get another cup. Let's keep working on this. And let's see if we can sell it to the church. And they went to the church in Antioch and they said, we have this great idea. And very gently and carefully they try to present this plan and see if they can get the church to join on with them. And the church, the leaders are looking at them like a cow eyes a new fence, you know, just kind of chewing the cud and staring. Okay, that's your plan, that sounds good. And then Saul and Barnabas pull out the trump card and say, it's the will of God. He told us to do this. Now, how are you going to stand against that? You don't see anything like this. We do see things like this quite commonly in our day. Somebody comes up with an idea, they're moved by it, they seek to convince a church that let's go with this, get behind us, will you join with us in doing this? What we find here rather very differently is that the church is working together, contending for the will of God in prayer, in thought, in conversation. We're not told how the Spirit communicated with the church, nor to whom He spoke, but this was clearly a collective enterprise. The disciple-making church at Antioch supplies the human and the financial resources to see the disciple-making mission spread through Barnabas and Saul. So we are here in this place where many are coming to trust Christ as Savior. We're going to spread beyond here through two of our very best, two that we've been leaning on and trusting in, that have been guiding us and directing us, we're going to send them out beyond our own borders to proclaim the gospel. Now this mission takes Barnabas and Saul to the island of Cyprus, then to Pisidian Antioch, a different Antioch. There's this Antiochus guy they keep naming cities after. Iconium. And Lystra, they go to these places, we find record of the messages that were preached, of the response that was there, and we pick up the account at the end of this first journey as commissioned evangelists by the church at Antioch, turning to chapter 14. Albeit disordered, there was indeed an enthusiastic response to Barnabas and Saul at Lystra, but as was so often the case, the response was tempered by harsh resistance. And this resistance was violent. Chapter 14 and verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Again, read between the lines. It was not a happy day. This was, I mean, they, they figure he's dead. They've hit him that many times with that many rocks. He's that injured that they just leave and there's no way that guy can survive. We've thrown all the rocks we need to throw. And they walk away. But, verse 20, when the disciples gathered about him to bury him, pull him out of the rubble and put him in the earth, it's all over as far as they know, he rose up and entered the city. I, that you know, be fun to hear an eyewitness account of how that worked. Uh, but somehow the stones did not do the damage that they thought they had done, and he gets up off the ground. 
And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derby. So probably in the cover of night, I would imagine, or at least somewhat secretively, he goes back into the city. We would imagine that his wounds are being dressed. And then in the morning, he takes off to Derby, 60 miles away to the southeast. And then there is this absolutely amazing development in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples. This is absolutely stunning words. You have just been stoned to the verge of death. You travel 60 miles and you go right back to preaching the gospel. Lystra was a fresh reminder that preaching the gospel can be a dangerous enterprise. But Saul refused to be intimidated. And with courage and with zeal, with passion for lost souls and with skill, he continued making disciples. Now making disciples involves not only evangelizing the lost, it also involves continuing to build them up in the faith. And we've seen that here. They returned to, uh, sorry, verse 21, he'd preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples. Then they returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. So passing back through the cities where disciples had been made, the team builds up these disciples. They continue to make disciples. They continue to edify and to teach. Encouraging believers as the churches take root and grow spiritually. Can you imagine Saul saying, through many trials we must enter the kingdom of God. The work of God will go on through many trials. He had to be bearing a lot of wounds as he stood before them. I can imagine the believers listening to him with with rapt attention. This man clearly is beat up. And imagine with that the courage of returning to Lystra, where you had been stoned. But as a new mother chooses pain in childbirth, there is likewise pain in making disciples, Paul says, And so he encourages them to continue in the faith. There will be many tribulations. We live in a world that is opposed to Christ. Press on. And, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. We note again the commitment to the spiritual health and the stability of the churches. There are those who seem to believe the disciple-making process is merely an individualistic task, one person proclaiming the gospel to another. And that is certainly the case many times. But the early church saw it as a collective, local church enterprise. The full church was in on this process. New believers were formed into local churches, Spiritual leaders were systematically placed over those churches to give oversight and direction. And there was a covenantal relationship with those members based on the teaching, the instruction of God's Word. And so the 
gospel enterprise, the making of disciples, is much more than simply one person proclaiming the gospel to another. We also don't really see any evidence here of mass evangelism. Again, not that this would be wrong, but it's not a mass evangelism where the gospel is proclaimed and the speakers run out of town and let people figure things out where they are. God will take care of them. He's found them. He's going to bring them into local churches. It just isn't the process. It's going into town, proclaiming the gospel, coming back and seeing people directed into local churches where there is authority set in place and the teaching ministry is continuing forward. So making disciples is not just announcing the gospel. It is bringing them to know all that Christ has said. And that takes a lifetime. So the new converts identified with local churches and the word of God continued to be preached. Saul and Barnabas leave, committing them to the Lord in whom they had trusted. So there is a place where the ties are connected or disconnected, but they're disconnected when all is established to be what it should be as a church is settled. Verse 24 of Acts 14, verse 24, then they passed through Pisidia and they came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia and from there they sailed to Antioch where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work they had fulfilled. What they have done, what Saul and Barnabas have done is connected in verse 26 to the church at Antioch. It's that church that commended them to the grace of God for this work that they had fulfilled. Saul and Barnabas were out on the frontier. They were the pioneers. They were proclaiming the gospel. But it's the church that is their support, their strength. As they come back, they report what has taken place. Verse 27, And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how He had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples there at Antioch. This is their base. Time to recover, recoup. But first, to announce, to proclaim, to report, and to continue on teaching, certainly, as they returned to their post. So this was their home base. This was the beachhead from which they launched forward to the front lines. The church labored together as a team to spread the good news of Jesus crucified and risen for the redemption of all who repent of their sin and place their full trust and faith in Him as Lord and Savior. Antioch was that place. And I have no sense in verse 27, what the, the, the bits I read in between the lines, is no sense that Saul and Barnabas had to beg the church to listen to them, to hear the report. Or that in any way the church was resistant to what they were hearing. They didn't have to beg Saul and Barnabas to report either. There was a desire. We have done this together. We have worked together on this project. Hear what the Lord has done through us. So in this church at Antioch, we witness a local church whose life together was characterized by their pursuit of Christ's commission to spread the light of the gospel to the lost. These are ABCs in our understanding of the church. But as we work our way through this series, this is absolutely essential. 
The church in Antioch was marked by a culture of evangelism at the local level and beyond. It's the way they thought. It's who they were as a body of believers. Proclaiming the gospel and laboring together for the formation of local churches of disciples was in their DNA. And this mission should mark ours as well. We are not Antioch. We're not strategically placed as they were. We have no apostles here. We're not the hinge pin on which the further work of Christ is turning into unique fields as such. But, in a unique and true sense, we can carry on this same mission and be part of this same work. So it should be clear to everyone that we exist as a local church to advance our risen Savior's quest to save a people for His name from their sins, to make them disciples, and to lead them and point them forward in the ways of the Lord. That's who we are to be. Perhaps you wondered why my atheist friend was so anxious about Christians spreading the gospel. He explained that to me. It was not because he appreciated the gospel. He lived his life in resistance to it. The reason he pressed the point was because he knew that making disciples was the church's mission. And as he said to me, I see very few Christians doing it. Now, I think he missed some things. I don't think it was entirely a fair shot. It's very interesting that even this atheist knew this is what Christians are about. And he didn't see much that impressed him. He respected disciples who honored their Lord's command, which I think is the only reason that he continued to eat lunch with me. But let's admit, most unbelievers will not grant us that respect. There's a resistance because of sin, and they will not appreciate always the efforts that we make to advance the gospel. Let's remember the bleeding, wounded Saul of Tarsus standing and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. What do we suffer? So very little. Spreading the gospel is our mission. And one truth that resonates from this passage is that this mission is a collective, local church effort. And it's here, I think, as Western individualists that we need to adjust our thinking. Because I probably, as I say this, tell you about this friend that I had that said, I just don't see many Christians evangelizing. I don't see them telling other people about Jesus. You probably heard that. There maybe was a, a sense of rebuke that was there and saying, yeah, I do very little that way myself. And probably most of us filtered that information from an entirely individualistic standpoint. How am I doing? I don't know that that's entirely wrong. And certainly there should be conviction individually as we fail to represent Christ as we are called to do as believers. But we notice from this passage that we need to think somewhat differently than that and need to recognize that the truth that resonates from this passage is that this is a collective mission. It is a work that we do as a church together. 
There is an individual responsibility, and we want to continue to press that, but we need to recognize ourselves as part of a body whose DNA is to talk to people about Christ and to spread the truth together. As I mentioned, there's no evidence of a gospel crusade or a big event that the church is organized. I'm not saying that they're evil, but they're not crucial to the mission, and sometimes I think they're as harmful as they are helpful. But at the end of the day, what it will be is a person typically trusting Christ as Savior when a believer has had a conversation with that lost person. It's going going to come down to that on some level in some way. Our task is to pray. Our task is to meet unbelievers. Our task is to meet with unbelievers and to tell them about Jesus. That's not going to look precisely like it looked for Saul of Tarsus. We're really not going to get very far going into the local synagogue and talking about Christ as Messiah. That's not a strategy we're going to be able to use effectively at all. So we need to use different, a different strategy. We need to think about the task in a way that fits our culture, our setting, our situation. But we do want to continue to work to see ourselves as a body evangelizing and as individuals expressing the truth to it that we all hold. And I think we should, speaking of the individual challenge, work to develop natural conversations in which the gospel is proclaimed. Not rigidly, not in a way that is forced necessarily. I know it's not always wrong to do that, but that should be a conversation that just flows from us as we meet unbelievers in right ways. I, I was um, rebuked, encouraged, helped uh, here recently on a flight that I took sitting next to a, a guy, and I couldn't find a way on earth to make the gospel sound like it anything more than I want to accost you with a message you don't want to hear. And I just share my experience in that is it was a spiritual struggle. And inside I'm going, I can't, in talking to this guy, I cannot find a way into this conversation for the life of me. And I I think I just got to give up or just say, I've got something I need to share with you and make it really seem strange and uncomfortable for him. So I, and, and this is my weakness and my sinful heart, but I struggled to pray to ask God to open up a door. And I struggled because I knew if I asked God to open up a door, if it opened, I was going to have to walk through it. And maybe he actually would open that door. And I wasn't very comfortable with this guy and wasn't so sure necessarily that he was comfortable with me. And it just, so I said, well, what am I doing? Lord, will you open up a conversation where I can share the gospel with this guy? And the conversation continued, and it opened up so clearly, easily, and naturally that I almost had to get down on my knees in the seat and and ask God to forgive me for doubting, for being so concerned. It was just right there. And I think many times what we do is we look in fear, in resistance, in concern 
how do I confront this person? How do I make them uncomfortable and myself? I've got to get this done and make this statement. What we need to do is seek the Lord to open up opportunities for us by His sovereign power. A man did not respond to the gospel, but there was a clear, somewhat detailed explanation of what the gospel is and not trusting in our own religious works, but trusting in what Christ has done. And I think if he walked out that plane, that he would, if you'd have interviewed him, he'd have said, that was a very natural conversation. Let's pray to that end. And may it be our orientation that we're always looking for such opportunities, indeed praying that God would open them up. But more importantly, I think, than the conversations we have with strangers in the passage of our days, is to work to bring our workmates to a hearing of the gospel, our neighbors, community contact, people who see us and know us and understand who, who we are, and to ask that God would open up opportunities and use us to create opportunities that will naturally lead to a discussion of what Christ has done. Now that's on the personal level as members. That's what was going on in Antioch. That's how all these people were coming to trust Christ as Savior. It wasn't through an evangelistic campaign. It was through people going out and touching people and talking to them about the message of Christ. But let me return here for just a few moments and go back to this more global level. The church at Antioch partnered together to fast and pray and give resources and to identify and send out evangelists to take the gospel far beyond their own borders. And I, I wonder in some sense if it wasn't more their communal perception that led to their individual proclamation of the gospel as opposed to the other way around. We sometimes think if we, every one of us is sharing the gospel, we're very great witnesses for Christ, then as a church that will follow. Well, it's true enough. But on some level, we need to partner together as a church to spread the gospel so that our thoughts are always centered there and it will naturally flow from our lips as we talk to people in this world by God's grace and by His supply. So the church, together, lent its authority to the evangelists, held them accountable, and participated with them in the mission through prayer support and through knowledge of their efforts. They were in on this mission. They wanted to see it. They wanted to sense it. They were part of it. And it doesn't seem to have dawned on anybody that it wasn't going to go forward. They were doing what Jesus had called them to do. They were His sheep. They were out there just finding them. It was going to go forward. They labored together, home and abroad, to find those sheep, proclaiming the gospel, baptizing believers, and continuing to teach them to follow Jesus in the context of local churches. Churches were being started. Believers were coming to Christ. They were being supplied, strengthened, encouraged. And the whole church was part of this. I think that's the right thing to read out of this narrative. And so by God's grace, may it be our DNA as a church on many levels of involvement that we, are, that we see ourselves as spreading the gospel and making disciples. And so as we've said so many times, this is the ABCs of our church's life, but these mission trips, the one taken off in a few hours here and uh, the, the one taking off next week as we relate to and encourage as a larger suburban church some rural struggling churches 
do you see yourself as pouring your life and soul into this mission? I'm talking to those that aren't going on the trip. You might say, well, that's a neat thing our church does. It's really kind of funny. It's really good. Teens are involved in it, and there's some other adults and people. It's just a nice thing to do, and we look forward to hearing how it went. Or do you look at it and say, that's my mission? That's our church seeking to spread its influence for the cause of Christ and to proclaim His truth in another place. To do, in some sense, what Paul was doing here in establishing and strengthening churches. Are you praying for these trips? Are you praying for the people on them, for the people that are going to receive the ministry and that great things would be accomplished? Let's all join together with this. We do have some events that are sought to be more programmatic and to reach out to our neighborhood. There is a night to unite and a vacation Bible school outreach. There's all kinds of people around the fringes that we can reach with the gospel in unique ways as well as those who come directly. Will we be praying for, supporting, and perhaps participating in these events? There are missionaries. Do we know about them? Do we know what's going on with them? Do we know what their struggles are, what they're accomplishing, where they're at in their ministry? And do we see ourselves as participating with them in what they're doing? Are we aware of the persecuted church? Do we know what's going on? And John Pratt prayed today about specific nations. He wasn't, trying, he wasn't sharing with us all the nations he could think of. He was sharing specific problems to the gospel. Did you think about in those nations that he referenced where the gospel's at there? Is it a place of decadence? Is it a place of resistance to the gospel? Is it a place of openness? Do we know what is going on in the great mission? Do we have a global interest in the spread of the gospel? Our church services, as we talked about here recently, are themselves a place where unbelievers come among us? Do we reach them? Do you see yourself on mission as you come to church to make disciples? And may I stress again the importance of prayer. Laboring together for the advance of the gospel, this is so much what's at the heart of our prayer gatherings. And what is the point of it is to join together and say we are on mission as a church through our prayers through the world. This isn't ritual, it's not formality, it's not something we do by tradition. This is how we participate with the risen Christ as He reaches people in unreached places where we could never go. We gather, Lord willing, this Wednesday night, those that aren't gone and on mission, will gather this Wednesday night. And one of the challenges as we gather here is to talk to the Lord of the harvest and to ask Him to contend for the glory of His name and to send out labors into the harvest. That's not unimportant work. That's seeing our place in the mission and seeking to mark our DNA with that emphasis. Not all can be part of that. I understand that, but just to think how am I participating in what Christ is doing in this world? Grant me a little bit more time. And I think there's another thing we have to hit against here. And that is 
when it comes to evangelism, I don't have that skill. That would be like me watching somebody pour a sidewalk. I would say, I don't have that skill. It's not rocket science. I'm sure if I took the time, I could probably learn, but it's not my world. It's better for me to pay that guy to pour a sidewalk at my house than for me to try to do that and mess up with it. I just can't, I'm not going to take the time to do that. He's the expert. I'm not. There's a lot of Christians that think that way about evangelism. Really thankful for the people that do that, that have the gift. They've, they've spent time in it. It's their world. It's not my world. It's not my skill. It's not something that I'm going to learn to do. We should not think like that. Evangelism is, at the end of the day, an outworking of my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I could tell you all day long I love my wife, which I do. And we have a, a wonderful relationship. I don't have any problem telling you people that. I think it's a good thing. But could you imagine if I said I have a wonderful relationship with my wife and I never talked about her? Never ever mentioned her name, never said anything about it, never indicated to the people at work that I was married. Would you believe me? Evangelizing, much of it is just a working out of the relationship that I have with Jesus Christ. He's my Savior. He's the one that gives me hope and strength. I'm going to naturally talk about that. And we will talk about it as a community. It's an effort that involves many people on many levels saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. We are not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation. And so working together, not on the front lines, most of us, as Saul of Tarsus, but we should all perceive ourselves to be actively involved in spreading that message. And what is that message? Let's rejoice together. And if you're separated from Christ today, you don't know Him as your Lord and Savior, you would not rejoice to talk to others about Him. God is Creator and Sovereign Lord of heaven and earth. has sent His Son into this world. Creating us in His image to worship and obey Him, to follow His will as what is ultimate and best and good for us, but we in our sin take the law of God and say, no way. We break that law. We do what he says not to do, and we do not do what he says to do. As lawbreakers, he sends his son, God and man, into this world to live out that law in perfect fulfillment, and then to die as a sacrifice in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of sin rising from the dead to defeat death and its penalty and granting to those who trust Christ in this way salvation. A response of repentance and belief in this good news for the forgiveness of sins is that good news. That Christ has done this. We put our trust and our confidence in it. That's our message. We take that to this world. The world's not looking for it but a world in which there are people who do not yet know that they are Christ's sheep. What a joy it is of ours as a church and as individuals to take that message and to make it clear and to see people, by God's grace, respond. May that mark the DNA of Eden Baptist Church. These are the ABCs of church life, but we recognize we have much to do, a long ways to go. By God's grace, may it mark our DNA. Let's bow together for prayer. I ask, Father, that you will do this work in us. 
Savior, that you would continue to draw people to your name and that you would use us to proclaim that message. And even here today, may evangelism take place. May someone hear the gospel who has not trusted it and come to trust it. Know that this is not the spread of a particular culture. It's not the spread of influence to gain money. It's not a political enterprise. This is beggars sharing with other beggars where to find bread. It's those who were once lost saying, I now see. Will you see it too? Will you turn from your sin and trust in Jesus crucified and risen? Father, give us courage and strength to take forward this message into all the world. And may we strive as a church in everything that we do to make disciples. We will thank you for what you're pleased to accomplish among us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Please stand with me and let's meditate in silence in our own hearts.